Sure. Yeah. Ad yeah. Adapt it how you need to or want to. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, let me interject. There are no wrong answers here, beloved. Just what is the one of the hardest or most daring thing? I'll, this Sunday, a family that comes to this congregation brought a young man about 12 years old that had never been to church. He didn't know anything about church. During the service, we serve, we, we, we serve communion. We ask anybody and everybody that wants to. And the family he came with asked him to come with them and stand in line and come through and receive communion. When he received communion, he started crying. So he went over on that side of the room, and uh, his, uh, the family that was with him, some of them went and sat with him while he cried. And, and what, what we found out later was is that he, he had never felt so welcomed and so loved and so cared for ever in his life. And so you got to understand the most daring thing he has ever done in his faith was come to church. Okay, so it can be any kind of thing, okay? But here's the next. What was the results of you doing this daring thing, and did it increase or decrease your faith? So continue through that conversation.
Okay, listen, if you're continuing to answer this question, then please continue. One of my difficulties is I have two tables with two people at each table rather than four or five. So that means they're done and you're not. But if you're continuing to have, if you're, are you still working on it really? Seriously. I'm sorry. Okay, well, let me ask the next question, okay? I mean, if you're still talking about this one, please continue. But let me ask the next one just in case, all right? Now, this, this is, you need to search your journey on this one. Who is the greatest man or woman of faith you have personally known? And what was it about their faith that makes them so memorable? Who is the greatest man or woman of faith you have personally known? And what was it about their faith that makes them so memorable? Okay. Now, if you're still continuing on the first one, please continue. But that's the next one. Okay. And now talk.
Anybody need more time? Yes. Okay. Okay. You got more time. Okay, I want you to have open your app or turn in your Bible to Hebrews chapter 11, and we're going to look at one verse tonight. I, I'm hoping I will get done around 11. I'm kidding. I was kidding. <laughs> Al Martin jerked his head. I think he heard himself. <laughs> okay, Hebrews chapter 11. Now, just as a recap, we've been going through the names in Hebrews chapter 11, Hebrews chapter 11 is what some people will call the hall of faith. In other words, these are the people that the writer of Hebrews, he reminds his readers about these people because their life of faith is an example to follow. There's something about the way that they lived out their faith that we need to learn how to practice and live out as well. And so we have, last semester we went through a lot of different names. Now we've come to verse 23. The last person we talked about was Joseph, which is verse 22. And now we're going to talk about Moses. Now what's happening 
if you were a Jewish person, what you would know is that now we're leaving the book of Genesis and we're stepping into the book of Exodus. Okay. Uh, so the backstory of this is Exodus chapters 1 and 2. So let's read verse 23, and then what I want us to do is keep your finger. We'll come back to verse 23, but then we're going to take a look at the backstory in Exodus 1 and 2. Okay? And here's the verse. This is my version of the New American, it's not Scott Latham's version, but it's the New American Standard Version that I'm using. Okay. Uh, by faith, Moses, when he was born was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw he was a beautiful child and they were not afraid of the king's edict. Now this is a really, really interesting verb. One of the things that makes this interesting is because, because they saw he was a beautiful child. Now that's interesting because the chapter starts like this. Listen to the first verse of Hebrews chapter 11. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for the conviction of things not seen. So something's going, it's, you know, they're not talking about how beautiful this baby is. In other words, every parent thinks every baby they have is beautiful. This is something else that's going on because this is about faith and faith is about things not seen. Okay? So we'll, we'll come back and talk about that. This is our, now I also want you to notice this. By faith, okay, which, who are we talking about? Are we talking about Moses' faith in this verse, or are we talking about his parents' faith? It's about his parents' faith, right? It's kind of tricky the way it's worded, but by faith, Moses, when he was born, he had nothing to do with that, by the way. You have nothing to do with your birth. Just want you to know that, okay? By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents. So this is the action of faith. See? So we're going to talk about Moses' parents. Next week, Michael Spaulding, the great Michael Spaulding is coming and is going to talk about Moses himself, the faith of Moses. But tonight we're going to talk about his parents. Okay. If, uh, Exodus chapter 1. If you'll flip over there with me uh, or... Make your app jump over there. Okay. Exodus 1, verse 8. And then we're going to look at other things as we go, but we're going to start with verse 8. Now, a new king arose over Egypt who did not know Joseph. Now, I'm going to stop there. Now, I promise you I'm not going to spend 87 minutes on every verse, but this one we need to look at. I want you to notice something. A new king arose over Egypt who is not named. He's not named. And he did not know Joseph who is named. Okay, now, now, okay, let me be a history nerd just for a minute. Okay, just put up with it. Okay, you're an adult. You can put up with things you don't like. So here we go. Okay, Joseph is huge to Jewish history. In Genesis, more space is dedicated to the life of Joseph than any other patriarch. He is given 13 chapters. But here we're told in the first chapter of Exodus, verse 8, a new king not named did not know this Joseph who is named. So I'm going to ask you, okay, so who is this king that we're talking about? I mean, this king doesn't merit 
being named. The, only, the most important thing about this new king is that he didn't know Joseph. This is what the writer of Exodus wants you to know. Okay, but, but who is this king? Most likely, most scholars agree, this is Ramses II. Now, Ramses II is described in history as the greatest pharaoh that ever lived. He reigned for 66 years. He had a massive army and conquered most of the Middle East. Today, if you go to the Valley of the Kings in Egypt, today, now, when you see the tombs of the kings, there is going to be one that stands out from all others. That's Ramses II's tomb. In Egypt today, he is recognized as the greatest, most celebrated, most powerful pharaoh that has ever lived. And the Egyptian government gave him a living honor in 1995. His body was transported to Paris. You know, his his entombment was all the and all the articles that go with that were transported to Paris for viewing and the Egyptian government when that happened issued him a passport uh, and the occupation on the passport is king so there's this living honor that he, that he had an enormous harem and had so many children that they became a class of nobles in and of themselves. The Ramses class. Okay. Okay, so now let's read chapter 1, verse 8 of Exodus one more time. Now a new king arose over Egypt, not named, who did not know Joseph. The writer of Exodus wants us to know that the most important thing about this new king, this greatest pharaoh of all time, the most important thing about him is that he did not know Joseph. The name of this king is not important. The greatness of this king is not important. Only that he did not know Joseph is important. And, uh, and the implication of this is, is, that, is that he did not know the God of Joseph. That's the implication. Now I just want to pause. I want you to talk to me for a second. Why is this important for us to know? This, this idea that, that the most important thing about this Pharaoh that the world says is this incredible person. Here, we're told that the most important thing about him is that he didn't know Joseph. Now, why is it important for us to see that? Yeah, why is it important for us to see the fact that the most important thing about this Pharaoh that the world celebrates is the greatest Pharaoh of Egypt who ever lived. Why, is, why here is that the most important thing is that he didn't know Joseph. You said something. The Hebrews are kind of liking it, likening Joseph to be yeah. at this level. Yeah, like greater than even. Yeah, because he's named. Yeah. Anything else? Why, why is this important for us to know? Isn't that law? Say that again. The law about baby. Yeah, we're going to get to that. Yeah, you're on it, bud. Yeah. Okay. Okay, I want you to consider something for me. I have a question. Yes. Do you think that he did not care about Joseph? Yeah, he did not care about Joseph. It's impossible. See, like, for example, one of the things when you became Pharaoh, uh, you were educated in the history yeah. 
of your people. You knew the history of your people inside out. How in the world then would he not know Joseph? Y'all, if y'all know the story of Joseph, I'm not going to repeat him. I'm going to take time. But Joseph saved Egypt. How would he not know? But the most important thing about him is he did not know. And the implication is he did not know Joseph's God. Okay, now here's something I want you to consider. In the kingdom of God, things are often upside down to what the world thinks. You hear what I'm saying? In the kingdom of God, things are often upside down to what the world thinks. Here in verse 8, what is important is that this king didn't know Joseph, not that he was the greatest Pharaoh of Egypt. What the world says is great may not be what God says is great. And this is very important for us to get a hold of. Because if we don't, then what's going to happen is is that we're going to start grabbing hold of things the world says is important and great. And that might not be what God is saying is important and great. Sometimes when I'm in conversation with people about their future, which I I mean, I I probably have that conversation every day with somebody. But sometimes when I'm in a conversation about a person's future, they will say to me sometimes, I believe that God has called me to do something great. And I'm going to tell you, beloved, I don't disagree. I don't disagree with that at all. But what I do wonder is if they're operating with the same definition of greatness that Jesus does. That's what I... Because Matthew chapter 20, Jesus tells us, he says this, he says, if you want to be the greatest... You need to be the least. See, I think I think what's happened a lot of times when people are saying, I think God has called me to be great, I think they're using the world's definition and not Jesus' definition. Jesus' definition is, is upside down, beloved. The world says, Blessed are the self sufficient. Jesus says, Blessed are those who are so poor they have to radically depend on me. That's upside down. The world says blessed are the powerful, but Jesus says blessed are the meek. The world says experience as much much of life as you can every moment. And Jesus says lose your life for my sake. That's upside down. The kingdom is upside down to the world a lot. Or maybe maybe I should say it this way. Maybe the world is upside down. To the kingdom. So I'm going to pause here. I'm going to ask you a question. Just to ponder the question. Okay. When it comes to what Jesus says is important. Versus what the world says is important. Which one does your life mirror the most? I'm going to repeat that question. When it comes to what Jesus says is important. Versus what the world says is important. Which one does your life mirror the most? And by the way, if your answer is really honest, in other words, an answer that you can really trust, then whatever your answer is, is is what you're really following. Jesus or the world. Now, let me say to you, to become like Jesus is to orientate your life around the things 
that he says is important, your whole life. Your whole life becomes oriented by the th- around the things that he says is important. And let me say one more thing about that. I do not think a person can do that by themselves. I think it's virtually impossible because some parts of your life you're ap- actually blind to. You don't see it. So I think that in order for us to orientate our whole life around the things that Jesus says is important, we need to be in community. We need to be in a community that's, that's helping us do that. They're pursuing the same thing. Uh, it's, it's like uh, it's a place where the, uh, you're pursuing God in the company of friends. Okay? I also think that it's helpful to be in conversation with someone older than you who, has, who knows a little bit more about the map than you do and can ask you questions to help you examine how you might be walking with Jesus in, in better ways. That's called discipleship. So, which does your life mirror the most? What's important to Jesus? Or what's important to the world? Okay, back to Exodus. What time is it? Holy cow. Okay, look at verse 9. Exodus 1, verse 9. He said to his people, Behold, the people of the sons of Israel are more and mightier than we Come, let us deal wisely with them, or else they will multiply. And then in the event of war, they will also join themselves to those who hate us and fight against us and depart from the land. So they appointed taskmasters over them to afflict them with hard labor. And they built Pharaoh storage cities, Python and Ramesses. But the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and the more they spread out so that they were in dread of the sons of Israel. And the Egyptians compelled the sons of Israel to labor rigorously. Sorry about that. <clears throat> and they made their lives bitter with hard labor and mortar and brick that all kinds of labor in the field, all their labors which they rigorously imposed on them. When the king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom he named Shipra, and the other was named Pua, he said to them, when you are helping the Hebrew women give birth and see them upon the birth stool, if it is a son, then you shall put him to death. If it is a daughter, then she shall live. Now, wait a minute. Uh, uh, so they're getting worried about the Israelites multiplying. So what they decide to do is kill sons and uh, not the daughters. Now, I will say to you that that probably is an immoral motive. For saving the daughters. Okay. Okay. Uh, by the way, also the term Hebrew here uh, is not a positive descriptor. The, uh, up until now, they've been called sons of Israel, and sons would be a, a, a generic term meaning women as well. Okay. Doesn't mean it's not a gender specific. It's sons of Israel. But that. But now they're using now. Now we've entered into a verse where they're using the word Hebrew. The Hebrew women, uh, the Hebrew midwives. Okay, I want you to know that term either is a, is saying this is a group of people that, if, if anything, it's saying that's them, not us. It's a them and us thing, us and they. Yeah. Okay. 
So it's separating. It says they are not my people. Okay, that is at least that. But more likely, it's a derogatory term, meaning a either it's this is a barbaric group of people, uh, very warlike, very uh, uh, uncivilized, or it is just this is people who are meant to be slaves. So either any way you take it, it's not a positive descriptor. Okay. Okay. So he asked them to to kill the baby boys, these midwives. But the midwives feared God, meaning they did not fear Pharaoh, and did not do as the king of Egypt had commanded them, but let the boys live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, "Why have you done this thing and let the boys live?" You can almost hear him being personally offended by this. Okay. The midwives said to Pharaoh, "Because the Hebrew women." Are not as the Egypt women; they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife can get to them. Now that is an underhanded insult to Egyptian women. That's what that is. In other words, the the Hebrew women are full of life and they're strong, and 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 they they're they're uh, they're they're I don't know what else word I could use, but it but what it's saying is the Egyptian women are weenies. They, you know, they're pansies. That's what that's saying. Okay, which is amazing that he didn't kill him on the spot for saying that. Okay. So God was good. This is verse twenty was good to the midwives, and the people multiplied and became very mighty, because the midwives feared God. He established households for them. In other words, God blessed them. Then Pharaoh commanded all the people. Now, see, he's gone. All right, that plan didn't work. So now, what we're going to do is I'm just going to tell everybody. Every son who is born, you are to cast into the Nile, and every daughter you are to keep alive. Now, now the reason why the Nile River, well, part of the reason is, is because the Nile River was overrun with crocodiles. So, uh, this, so everyone now is mandated to kill a Hebrew baby boy. Okay, all right now. Going to verse two now. I mean, chapter two. Now, a man from the house of Levi went and married a daughter of Levi. Now, Levi was the priesthood. So these are priests, okay? Priest, priest. She was from the tribe of Levi, and he was from the so priest, priest, okay? And a woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was beautiful, she hid him for three months. See, this is the echo, uh, okay, of Hebrews chapter. 11 verse 23 they're echoing here okay now you know the rest of the story what she does when she can't keep him quiet any longer. have you ever been around a baby very much uh, do you know that sometimes they just refuse to be quiet like particularly between the hours of 12 midnight to about four in the morning they refuse to be quiet you know okay all right so when they couldn't keep him hidden any longer she builds a little basket uh, that basket by the way in Hebrew, the word used for that basket is ark, like Noah. Noah in the ark. She built a little ark, and she puts him in the reeds. Now, why the reeds? What did you say? Well, you, you see them coming. So you, you know, and that's why the women, the Egyptian women, bathed in the Nile, but they bathed in the reeds. So she's also putting 
him in a place where she's hoping an Egyptian woman might see him and have mercy. And we know that's exactly what happened, right? Okay. Okay. Uh, okay, so let's go back to Hebrews chapter 11, verse 23. By the way, uh, just so you know, this stuff that we're looking at in Exodus that we just looked at, that's the backstory of this verse in Hebrews, uh, the Jewish people who would be receiving this letter, this letter to the Hebrews, whoever wrote it to them, he would assume that they had the story in Exodus memorized. I mean, they would have it down word for word. Okay, so he's assuming that as he raises up this story. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw he was a beautiful child and they were not afraid of the king's edict. So it took three months for an Egyptian woman to take him from the reeds? No, no, no. She hid him for three months and then and probably that same day is when he was found. So Now, we also know that Miriam, his older sister, watched this process and when the, 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 the person who pulled him out of the Nile was the daughter, one of the daughters of Pharaoh. Okay, so even she is now defying him. She takes the baby. Miriam runs up to this woman and says, listen, I know someone who can nurse this baby for you. And she says, okay, tell her to take the baby and I will pay her. So for a while then, until he was pretty, until he was somewhat independent, Moses was nursed and cared for by his mom. His real mom. But then at some point as a child, he was delivered to Pharaoh's house and then he was educated in uh, the royal uh, process. So, Okay, now I just want to remind you, what is this chapter 11, Hebrews chapter 11, what is it about? What's it about? The whole people, chapter. People of faith. Faith, yes, it's about faith. Now, this is the focal point, living by faith. And in this verse... Moses' parents show us something about living by faith. This is not about Moses' faith. But then again, I will say to you, it is about Moses' faith. It isn't, and it is. Don't you just hate those quandaries when it's like, no, it's not that, but yeah, it is that. It's like, well, which is it? Well, it's both, okay? Um, Moses who confronted Pharaoh, Moses, who led the children of Israel out of Egypt, Moses, whom God used to part the Red Sea and give the Ten Commandments, Moses, who met face to face with God, Moses, who is credited with the first five books of the Old Testament, the Torah. This is not about his faith, but it is about his faith. The faith that gives rise to the faith of Moses began with his parents. Do you hear what I'm saying? In other words, faith for Moses didn't start with him. It started with his parents. If we're going to talk about the faith of Moses, which Michael's going to do next week, we have to begin by talking about the faith of his parents, which we're trying to do this week. Now, listen to me just for a second. Just give me your attention. I'm going to make some pretty uh, bold statements. 
which you might be able to shoot me down for. Uh, I'm, I'm aiming to, to sort of uh, uh, be a little bit radical in what I'm trying to say. So it, it, it sort of grabs you, okay? The practice of your faith is not just a private practice. The practice of your faith has a direct impact on those around you and their faith. The, the reverse is also true. The lack of practicing faith or the lack of faith has a direct impact on those around you and on their faith or lack of faith as well. Let me put it this way. Part of your faith or lack of faith is somehow part of the faith or lack of faith of those that have been around you. Am I making sense so far? I know this sounds like circles. That's how I think anyway. That's why I never get anything done. But stay with me. Your faith affects those around you and the faith of those around you affects your faith. Or, like I can say this, the lack of faith that you have affects those around you and the lack of faith they have affects you. In regards to faith in Jesus, how you are affecting uh, people around you has to do with how you're walking out your faith. Okay? So how are you affecting others? Yeah. I'll add on to what like James 2 um, talks about like faith and by your deeds. And yes. Like you show your, you Absolutely. Have faith. That's right. That's it. Yeah, and it doesn't mean I have faith now, I must go do something. What it is saying is, is that faith is such a thing that it will produce fruit and work through me. You know, so if someone says, yes, I have faith in Jesus, but you don't see anything coming from their life, then you've really got a question. Well, maybe you have mental agreement about what's been told to you about Jesus, but having faith in him might be a, another story. Because faith will produce. Okay. Mark 2 is by their faith, your sins are forgiven. Yes, yes. Yeah, that's the, the, the quadriplegic or paraplegic that's lowered through. They tear up the roof and lowering down. And Jesus, it says Jesus saw their faith, not, not the one down here, their faith, and so he healed him. So you see, you see okay, so let's me, let me say, I know that like my faith is very private to me. There is so, there is intimacies that I have with Jesus that I'm not going to share with anybody. The only person that ever heard about those intimacies that I have with Jesus was my wife, okay? But I will also say, I don't want, I want my faith visible. I, 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 when, when you're around me, I want you to, uh, I, I want you to think to yourself, there's this, this, this is a person that Jesus is beautiful to him. This guy, this guy's hard after Jesus. I want to, you know, so if I just keep it private and not let anyone, then, you, you know, all you would think is that guy is fat and looks like Santa Claus. That's all you'd think. Okay. So, okay. So how are you affecting those around you? Think about it. I mean, do you have evidence that you are encouraging someone else that's around you in your circles of influence do you have evidence that you're encouraging someone's faith in Jesus, someone's walk in Jesus? Or are you living in such a way that you're kind of creating obstacles for those around you 
to have faith in Jesus? See, that's the question. Okay, now we're going to have to talk about, okay, that, so point one. Point two. And, oh my gosh. Okay, point two. We're going to have to talk about the word beautiful here. I've already mentioned it once. Okay. In Hebrew, the word root for this word, in other words, the word that this word comes from, is tov. And in Hebrew, that means good. Has anyone visited a coffee shop in town called Tova? That's this Hebrew word. Oh, you, you live there. Don't talk to me about that. I, okay. It, it's the word good. It's the Hebrew word for good. Okay. Here in Exodus, the word carries also the idea of being uh, uh, of something being out of the ordinary, something being extraordinary. In fact, uh, it's it's not about physical beauty. It's about there's something different here. Like I, I've I've uh, been in groups of people. Like well, I worked in the oil fields for a while, and I did. You know, all the dangerous stuff and all the grunt work, you know, and, uh, you know, uh, but from time to time, I would have men come up to me when there wasn't anybody else around and say, listen, man, there's something different about you. And I don't know what it is, but I, I want to know about it. I want, I want that, whatever it is. Okay. That's what this, that's what this word means. There's something extraordinary. Uh, the NIV translation probably comes the closest. Does anyone have NIV? Yes, like unique. What'd you say? Yeah, also like in my translation, it's like uh, uh, Moses was not an ordinary baby. Yeah. Is that that was that was the NIV that you're saying? I believe so. Yeah. Yeah. No, no, no. This was it. Is that? Yeah, I think he just read it out loud. Sure. Um, by faith, Moses' parents hid him for three years after he was born because they saw he was no ordinary child. Yes, there you go. And then New Living Translation also captures it really well. Al, did you have that one? Yeah. Um. Uh, they saw that he was uh, giving them an unusual child. Yeah, okay. So you get this idea. Okay, so... You know, it's not like every other parent who has, you know, they go, oh, that baby, my baby's so beautiful, you know, which every parent deserves to do that. It's not, but that's not what this is talking about. This is talking about that they recognize there's something different about this child. Okay. Now we're going to try to unpack what it is there. But, but what we have to do is we have to go back to another word in in this verse, it's the word because. Notice it says, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because. Because they saw he was beautiful, a beautiful child, and they were not afraid of the king's edict. Now, some translations don't include and. They put that together. In other words, they saw that he was a beautiful child uh, therefore, they were not afraid of the king's edict. Okay, so now that word because can be looked at three different ways. Aren't you so glad you came to Bible study to get an English lesson? Okay. All right. First of all, it can mean this. The cause of the hiding of the child uh, uh, was because the child was beautiful. 
Second, the cause of, of why they were afraid, the cause of hiding the child was because they were not afraid of the king's edict. It would read like this. Seeing the child was beautiful, they hid the child because they were not afraid of the king's edict. That's actually, you can actually translate the Hebrew that way in this verse. Okay, So first could be because they saw the child beautiful. And because they saw the child beautiful, they weren't afraid of the king's edict. And that's, well, that was the cause of them hiding the child. Second is because they weren't afraid. I mean, they saw the child's beautiful, but the cause of hiding him was because they were not afraid. But here's what I think is the cause. The cause is faith. What is this chapter about? By faith. By faith. Okay. This is what is, you know, this is what this whole section of Scripture is about. They hide the child because of faith. Because they have faith, they see the child a certain way. Okay. Because they have faith, they feel a certain way about Pharaoh. Faith is the cause of why they hide the child. And I'll actually say, in Acts chapter 7, uh, we have the story of Stephen. Stephen is the first martyr. He's the first one to be martyred as a Christian. And what happened, he, he was a guy that served tables to widows. I mean, he's, he served food to widows, took care of widows. And somehow or another, he gets into this argument with some, I guess, some pretty important people. And so what Stephen does is he gives them a lesson on their, their history from Jesus' point of view. And it angers them so much that they stone him. Okay? And it's a long speech. It's a long sermon. But in that sermon, he says this. He says uh, that that they, they hid Moses because God saw him as beautiful. Now, now listen to that. Who is it that saw Moses as beautiful? It was God. This was how the Jewish people understood this statement in Exodus and now in Hebrews. The, the rabbis traditionally understood that, that what was being talked about is that God saw the child as beautiful. And by faith, the parents understood that. This is the key to understanding what is being said with this word beautiful. Moses was beautiful in God's sight. And so by faith, Moses' parents saw him as beautiful as well. And then were not afraid to hide him. Because they were seeing as God saw it was God's perspective that made the difference. And only by faith could the parents see God's perspective. Faith, beloved, listen, faith sees certain things. Non-faith or unfaith that, that unfaith or non-faith cannot see. Faith, let me say, it, faith sees things that non-faith or unfaith can't see. Faith shapes how you see things. Just like the lack of faith shapes how you see things. Um, you, I think all y'all know the story of that. Uh, um, in 2004, uh, my wife and I felt like God was asking us to quit all of our jobs and just simply trust Him for what we needed. And we took 
what we felt like God was saying to us, to our community. We asked them to test us, to evaluate, pray with us. And so the outcome was that they agreed that God was asking us to do this. So in July of 2004, Diane and I were, we, we quit being gainfully employed. Now we had a house payment, car payment, electricity, groceries. We had, we had six children, but four were still living in the house. Okay? All right. Uh, we felt like God was calling us to trust Him for everything. No jobs, nothing. Okay? Just if we needed it, then God, we just we're going to trust Him that God would provide. Okay? All right. So uh, as we as we entered into this, I confessed to to Diana. I said, I I am terrified. I'm just terrified about this process. In fact, how you could image it is that there's this doorway God is asking me to walk through and there's heel marks all the way to the door because he's dragging me there. But when I confessed it to her, I said, now, now I think one of Diana's spiritual gift was faith. I mean, she trusted God like I've never seen anybody trust God, okay? So when I said, I, I'm, babe, I'm, I'm terrified, she said, I'm excited. This is an adventure with God. I wanted to slap her. <laughs> I mean, but you can see how she, she was seeing it different than I was seeing it. She was seeing it from faith. I was seeing it from non-faith, unfaith, Okay. Faith sees things from God's perspective. That's what I think is happening with Moses' parents. By faith, they see what God is up to in this child. And so they act accordingly. Faith seeks God's perspective. Do you do that? Do you seek his perspective? Do you practice faith seeking God's point of view and living life based on that perspective? Okay, so what I've said to you so far is your faith or lack of faith affects others. I also said that faith seeks God's point of view. Okay, and I'm going to make one more point real quick, okay? Uh, let's read this verse, verse one, uh, 11, chapter 11, verse 20. Let's read it like we're Jewish people, okay? Well, let's read it like we're Jewish Christians. Uh the, you know, the first people that read this, were they were soaked in the Old Testament, uh, but they were also followers of Jesus. And one of the things they would notice in this verse, they would notice the connections between Jesus and Moses. I'll tell you, in fact, the Gospel of Matthew, the theme of the Gospel of Matthew is that Jesus is the new Moses. So, in this verse, verse 23, uh, Jewish Christians would notice... Uh, the, the connection between Jesus and Moses in this. Uh, in other words, in Jesus' story, was there a tyrant killing babies? Yep. Uh, let's see. Uh, where does Moses find safety? He finds it in the house of Pharaoh, right? Okay, all right. So when, when the tyrant, when, his, when Jesus' father, Joseph, is warned in a dream about the tyrant coming to kill babies, where do they go to find safety? They go to Egypt. Yeah. In, in Acts, Stephen, the guy that was martyred, in that sermon, he calls Moses a deliverer 
But in Romans, Jesus is referred to as the deliverer. A new deliverer has come. That's what a Jewish Christian would have heard in verse 23. Now, so, so let, me, let me end with these questions. Do you see Jesus as beautiful? Does he cause you to worship God and sometimes defy what humanity thinks? In other words, who is Jesus to you? How, how precious is Jesus to you? And is he precious enough that you would, if you needed to, you would put your life on the line for him? Is he the hope of your whole life? Is he your deliverer? Okay, so, oh my gosh, I talked way too much. Uh, let's get in your groups and just discuss some of these questions that uh, I have shared with you. I apologize for going so long. Uh, hopefully there will be some, some good takeaways from tonight's conversation. Okay, thank you. So you brought up Stephen and how he was the first martyr. So to be like a true martyr, should you do it knowing that you're trying to become a martyr? No, like you have to do it. Where are the groups? I think I'm To be a martyr means that you're willing to put yourself in a place where that might Like, if it comes to your
Scott, are you gonna make a sandwich or not? Oh, okay. Wow. 